You're listening to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis, a podcast designed to explore the personal mission of everyday leaders. Hear from men and women who are making a difference in their corner of the world and discover what keeps them on mission. Welcome to On Mission with Dr. Matt Davis. I'm Jonathan Sheely. In today's episode, we are joined by Ian Ferguson, owner and consultant at Lighthouse Strategic Insights. He presented Temporal Skills, Eternal Purpose in recent General Assembly. Ian is an accountant. And so here's a man with tremendous expertise, and yet he has chosen to dedicate his life to ministry. And that's what Maranatha is all about. Here he is. He's a Christian college graduate, and he is using his gifts and talents, yes, in his local church, and he serves in that way behind the scenes, but he has also founded a ministry where he is able to help Christians and others with specific areas of need in his area of expertise. Man, that is the sweet spot for ministry. Right. He's a great example of what we want our students to do with their Maranatha education. You can be successful even in business without losing a focus on ministry and without losing that ministry heart. Accountants work long hours, especially Mm -hmm. certain times of the year. If you're a CPA, it's an April 15th tax deadline. If you're a nonprofit accountant, it's more it's later in the fall. But they live and die at the office. I mean, it is a long hours kind of a profession. And yet, in all of the hours in the office and the time spent and the keeping up with all the new literature that they have to absorb, to see someone that keeps that focus on serving the Lord first and foremost, that's really the heart to watch for in this episode. You know, we had an earlier episode, I think it was in season one, with Don Donovan here on our campus, our CFO. And I saw reflections mm-hmm. of Absolutely. his heart and his uh, approach to his profession in the conversation we had with Ian as well. So let's get to it. Joining us today is Ian Ferguson, owner and consultant at Lighthouse Strategic Insights. Ian and his wife, Emily, live in Taylor, South Carolina. They have four children, Evan, Isabella, Abigail, and Elliot. His first full-time job was a staff auditor with a CPA firm. His favorite meal is a toss-up between a good pizza and meat off the grill. A few hobbies of his include grilling, reading, and woodworking as time permits. His favorite sport teams are the Cleveland Guardians, Cleveland Browns, Michigan Wolverines, and the Detroit Red Wings. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here today. All right. So I have to kind of chuckle when the favorite foods, it comes back to, quote, meat off the grill. That's that's incredibly specific. Uh, not very much. <laughs> it is. It all, it all Just comes any down, meat? It, it comes down to what we found at the store that week and what we have time for. Although I have to say a, a recent favorite has actually been salmon. Salmon. Mm-hmm. Found a oh. really good marinade recipe that we like, and uh, we've started. I'll take the whole half of the fillet. Yeah. Stick it on, skin on. Okay. And cook it that way rather than slicing it first, and then slice it when it comes off. And it's it's turned go. out really well. Oh, that sounds it. delicious. And when it's flaky, yeah, exactly. when you pull it apart instead of cutting, almost creamy. Well, absolutely. But how do you keep it from sticking to the grill? That's the part that I. Can That's never where the get. skin comes in. Right. Okay. Because then if it sticks, it's just the skin sticking. And the the nice thing about salmon skin is you can either eat it or not as your taste dictate. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) it's worked out really well. And stick a nice thermometer in there so you get the temperature just right. And it's it's and if you do offset, you don't even really get that real burn on the bottom, right? And that's exactly what I do. Left side, salmon on right side. Indirect heat is that what you're trying to do? Yeah. 
Correct. Yeah. So, so I do the outside burners and then the salmon in the mm-hmm. middle. Uh, I do have to be careful though, because I did get one that was just a little bit too long for my grill last week and I had to kind of <laughs> twist it just a little bit. We'll have to keep an eye on that next You're time. You're bringing your tape measure into the supermarket. Hey, exactly. it's got to be in the, inside exactly. this window. All right. That's weird. <laughs> so Cleveland Guardians. Hmm. I don't think I've ever heard of that team. What sport do they play? They, uh, <laughs> a little history there. So for over a hundred years, we had the Cleveland Indians name, and I still refer oh. to them as Cleveland Indians in in conversation. I thought they had just been eliminated permanently from baseball. To be to be well, out. they were just unfortunately eliminated from the season. <laughs> still but that's competing. another story. Yeah. They uh, to be historically accurate, any reference to a player from a season prior to this year should right. refer to him playing for the Cleveland Indians because he did not play for the Cleveland Guardians at that right. point in time. Well, we went only players that. this past season played for the Cleveland Guardians. So they're the first and only participants, and the Cleveland Guardians have correct never it, been to the postseason. Uh, actually, they've never not been to the postseason. Oh, they did make it The, the Cleveland oh, Guardians right. have, right. have always and only won the division <laughs> in, oh, every, wow. in every season where they've carried that name. What a dynasty. What yeah. a dynasty. <laughs> I would say we're ahead of the Yankees, but they just eliminated us, so I can't really go there. Nope, not anymore. So the the thing that kind of stands out to me, though, is that you have these Ohio teams that you follow, and then all of a sudden yeah. you jump into Michigan, which I didn't think that was legally allowed. It isn't unless you have a, a an important exception clause. Yeah. And in my case, that is that my dad is a Detroit native who moved to Cleveland as a young adult. And so growing up in Cleveland in the 90s, you couldn't really cheer for anyone outside of Cleveland because the Indians no. were the big thing in town. Uh, but with no professional hockey team in Cleveland, I retained my loyalties there. And then I did stick with the Michigan Wolverines, which was was good when I was growing up. Uh, during my adult life, it's been a little rough, but we did come out on top last year. So we're smiling about so that. So you got to like carry your certificate with you that says, hey, I have the exception. Don't hate. Yeah, otherwise you're definitely getting beat up. When I'm wearing like a Cleveland hat and a Michigan shirt, I get some pretty funny looks. Even in the South, people know that those two don't go together. Yeah, yeah. Well, we really appreciate your time invested in the students already this morning uh, with a great assembly. And here on the show, we're going to talk about the same thing. So we're interested in what your life mission is and kind of how you got to it. Yeah, and as I look at the idea of a mission statement, I, I don't know that I've in recent years, other than maybe a college project, written down a formal mission statement, but there's there's three verses that come to mind when I think about my mission in life, and actually two of them I talked about during the assembly this morning. One is when when God said to Moses at the burning bush, what is that in your hand? And it's the idea of using whatever he has placed in my hand. In Moses' case, it was a shepherd's staff, but using whatever he has placed in my hand for his glory. And then Moses' prayer in Psalm 90 that God would establish the work of our hands, taking work that's done by people who are finite on behalf of a God who's eternal, and therefore that work lasts for eternity. But then at an even more basic level, I also go to Philippians where Paul, his prayer is that I may know him. And really none of the rest of that works if we don't know Mm. Jesus Christ, if we don't have that relationship with him. And if you look at someone like the Apostle Paul, and that's what his longing is, not his celebration that he's done it, but his longing that he would, that's a lifelong pursuit. Mm. 
But starting with that and saying, I want to know Christ. I want that to be my passion. And then I want to use whatever he's placed in my hand for his glory. Amen. So I wanted to ask you about that because you use that verse, Exodus 4.2, where Moses is asked by Almighty God a question. And you talk about a nerve-wracking experience. You know, I, I know that it must have been... Especially with the bush on fire. Yeah. It, it, the visual itself must have been quite amazing uh, to be standing there and and witnessing a miracle like that. It got his attention. But then it was really the conversation that took place as God is is sort of challenging Moses with, okay, I have something very big for you. And what's kind of lost maybe in our modern thinking about Moses, because we do know what the rest of the story is for Moses. We have that recorded. He wasn't that guy at this time, right? And, and so he's thinking of himself in a much different frame than the way God was looking at him. In fact, part of the reason it was probably nerve wracking for him is when you look at what he was doing at that point in his life, I don't think he was having too many conversations with anybody, any people. This is a guy who was working as a shepherd out in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of sheep who he might have talked to the sheep, but I promise you they didn't talk back to him. <laughs> and he'd been sure. doing that for the last 40 years. Yeah. That's a long time. I mean, these these periods of Moses's life where it kind of breaks into three sets of 40, um, that's a whole career it is. for any modern person a good career. It is. And so he's thinking, I'm kind of on the, the downward side of my life and my career. And yet God says, buddy, I, this has all just been preparation for the final act where you're going to be a patriarch. And a final act that was so profound and so significant that it really makes those first two acts just the backstory, mm. just the how did we get here? And Moses didn't know that at that point in time. He, he had to have been wondering, he's, he's the one who wrote 70 years or if by reason of strength, 80 years, which was the age he was at that moment with the burning bush. And in a sense, he accomplished everything for God in overtime. Right. Yeah. yeah. That, the, the part that you're not guaranteed. Right. <laughs> but, but think about another fact about Moses. Here he had grown up a prince of Egypt. He had been given the finest education that the world afforded at that time. The Egyptians were masters of collecting the knowledge of the world. And they assimilated through their empire vast resources, uh, treasures of, of knowledge and information and wisdom. And he would have been the beneficiary of that as being raised in Pharaoh's house alongside with the natural born princes of Egypt. And so he had the finest education afforded to anyone in the world at that time or for the next thousands of years, right? Until right. the internet comes along, there's really no other place on earth that has collected as much human wisdom. And I'm not sure I would call most of what's on the internet today wisdom, but- <laughs> There's some wisdom there, but it's in the minority. It, it, you have to really look for it, right? But, but think of that. And so here he is with that education and God has called him to use it for 40 years by walking around with sheep out in the wilderness. <laughs> he had to feel a sense of, this is it? Uh, God, what, what do you really want from me? Um, maybe some shame 
maybe some guilt. I ruined it. Uh, God had something for me, surely, but I've made these mistakes. I, I murdered a guy. <laughs> I, I, I stepped out of line, and now it's over. Exactly. It's, what have I done, right? And yet, when we look back at what he accomplished after that, this is a guy who his preparation was perfect. Mm-hmm. He spent an extensive period of time learning how government works hmm. in that era. Not quite how government works in our era or doesn't work. And then he spent a period of time getting to know the wilderness. I don't think that's insignificant, but also just navigating, moving large quantities of creatures from place to place. (laughs) And I think in a lot of senses, putting just kind of this practical edge Hmm. on what he had already learned and also instilling a dose of humility that he became noted for. But I don't think that was there at age 40, uh, right. including you look at what happened and it wouldn't give any indication that he was a terribly humble individual at that point in his life. Well, if he was the meekest man that ever lived and meekness is power under control, he certainly didn't have that attribute no. at that time. No. Power, yes. Control, yeah. no. So that's an interesting role model for someone who, as you and I both trained for secular vocations, professions, I should say. And yet I've never viewed myself in that, in that mode as anything but in ministry. And I think you're kind of looking at your life the same way. Is that fair way. to say? It's interesting too. You mentioned the, the legal profession and, and I'm in the accounting profession. I first selected accounting because all the way through high school, I was interested in pursuing the legal profession, but wanted a degree that I could market on its own rather than only by going on to law school and then found myself sitting in freshman accounting courses and finding that it was such a fit for how I was wired, how God had made me that, you know, you hear the statistics about people who change their major from one thing to the other. I was actually an accounting major at the time. I didn't change my major. From day one, I had the same major all the way through grad school, but I did change my career choice and decided this is what the Lord's pushing me towards, not uh, not the the legal world. And, it, and a lot of that, I should have seen it coming because right. of my love of numbers. I love working with numbers. I think in numbers. I I enjoy numbers. They fascinate me. That that might be one of the things I enjoy so much about the game of baseball. As sure. well as just stats. The numbers are yeah. endless. Yeah. And we thought that before all the sabermetric stuff came in. <laughs> and now they've come in and showed us that they weren't maybe as endless as we <clears throat> thought. But it's it's no shortage of a way to put that to use. It's so interesting that you are describing it that way because in other conversations, for example, with Mrs. Ruffin, who is musical, she she thinks more so in that mode of things. And talked so much about the fact that God opened doors for her into fields of the arts to be able to use those in ministry. And here you are. I, I don't know if there's an actual wheel of opposites in terms of career, but that was... But if there is, <laughs> those are about close. as close. <laughs> yeah. And yet you're describing it in very much the same terms. And I think I would as well, that there's there's a moment where it kind of clicks. And that's not for everyone. I don't often tell stories on my kids here in the podcast, but... 
my son was doing his accounting homework the other day and he had almost the opposite experience. You yes. know, what, what's the <laughs> yes. opposite of epiphany, you know, <laughs> depiphany. And he said, I can't believe I just have to create another balance sheet. And then he said, for no reason. And I'm like, well, son, <laughs> it's an assignment. That's the reason. That's the reason. <laughs> but in his mind, this is ridiculous. You know, I, I just did one of these yesterday and now I have to do it again, you know. <laughs> say <laughs> that's uh that's what the job is buddy and yet for all my love of numbers it really goes much deeper than this and i i spoke with one of the accounting classes here yesterday and i shared with them what i have come to believe and that is there's kind of three areas of skills that you need to have to really be effective in this profession and and really in a lot of professions you just kind of change some of the details right from a from a competence standpoint you you really, you need to be good with numbers, but that's not going to set you apart in the accounting profession. Nobody's in the accounting profession who isn't good with numbers. Of course. So it's it's necessary, it's important, but there's there's no there's no distinction there in that. So if you really want to be a difference maker there, the next step is communication. Hmm. And saying you don't just need to be skilled with numbers, you need to be skilled with words. You need to know how to communicate concepts to people, verbally and in writing. Most of us are better at one than the other. I happen to have spent more time training in verbal communication. I minored in speech. And I find that figuring out how to clearly write something takes me a little bit longer than figuring out how to say it. And then the third, and it's also a C area that I talk about is connection. And if you really want to make a difference as a professional in this field, what I see as you needing to do is be skilled in your relationships with people. And then what I told them yesterday is then you have this opportunity where you're friends with numbers and you're friends with people. And you get to be the mutual friend who introduces them and helps them understand what those financial numbers in their life, in their business, in their ministry mean for them so they can put them to proper use, even if that's not their comfort level. Oh, absolutely. You're the guy who knows both. But mm. it also means that you're not just dealing with numbers. You're dealing with people and you're caring about them and you're making a difference in their lives. Right. And I think the key to that, what you're talking about, being able to communicate, being able to connect is that most of the people you're going to be explaining these things to are not accountants. Correct. If they speak the same language in your profession, then, of course, there's a shorthand way to get there, or you can just email them the spreadsheet and they'll know what it means. The point of your business, if we want to put it in that, in that frame, is really helping lay people understand the significance. And you, you, you used a phrase in the General Assembly that I keyed in on as well, and, and it was an assembly, so I didn't feel the freedom to say amen, but I, I wanted to at that point. But you said that I'm giving them these audit reports and these business meetings because this information is so key to making leadership decisions. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yes, exactly. And if I don't understand it, or I don't get it on a regular basis, or I don't take the time to pull it apart and see what's really there, then I'm going to miss insights. And for me in leadership, that's a stewardship obligation. Mm -hmm. 
And so I have to understand it enough on my own, even though I'm not an accountant, I still have to understand it enough and be interested enough. And it's not good enough. And I see this happen all the time in ministry. I'm sure you do too, where people just say, well, I'm not a numbers guy, as if that's a plausible excuse to what I would say, abdicate a leadership responsibility to understand the numbers, right? It's so key to effective ministry. And you don't have to get to the point where you're an expert in those numbers. But what you do have to get to the point of is being able to say, I at least understand what they're trying to tell me. I understand what they're telling me about the direction of the organization I'm leading. I can spot... Maybe I can't conclusively say we're in a healthy spot or an unhealthy spot, but I can at least spot where I might need to get some more input to say, hey, here's what I think I'm seeing. Can you help me unpack this further? That's where you really need to be. And if you can get beyond that, that's even better. But to just look at a piece of paper with a blank look on your face and hope we can quickly move on to the next thing in the board meeting or right. in the leadership team meeting. Doesn't set an organization up for success because finances cannot accomplish the mission of your organization, but a lack thereof can prevent you from fulfilling mm. your mission and will prevent you from fulfilling your mission. A friend I have puts it this way, no margin, no ministry. <laughs> That's exactly it. If we don't have some buffer, some profit, so to speak, in our nonprofit, then there isn't going to be any ability for us to actually sustain this ministry beyond this year. <laughs> and so there has to be some thought for the future. There has to be planning in place. And what what a budget comes down to, and I just used the nasty mm. word that nobody likes to use, what a budget comes down to is really a statement of priorities. It is. And there's always more that we could do than what we will probably be afforded the opportunity to do. And for me, the beauty in that as a leader is using that to discern God's will for this organization. I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but I don't think I am no. to say that. God gave us a mission, yes, but it, he didn't give us unlimited resources. He has unlimited resources, but he hasn't, he hasn't chosen entrusted us with all of them. <laughs> to delegate Just all of them to me. a very small portion. I, I pray otherwise, but so far that hasn't come to fruition. <clears throat> so that means he's given us this mission and he's given us the, this finite bucket of resources, which include more than just the money. It's the physical resources, mm-hmm. it's the personnel, it's the uh, the, the relationships and, and stakeholders and the history and the heritage. All of those things are a part of the stewardship of ministry leadership. But in terms of the financial resources we have, that's that's all we have to get the job done. And to your point on budgeting being priorities and to the point of this podcast – being on mission, yeah, you cannot select the right priorities in your budget process unless you have a keen understanding of what your mission is as an organization. I shared in the General Assembly this morning, my understanding when I look at budgeting that the budget ultimately should be the balance point between the priorities that are driven by the mission of an organization. And that's why I say organizations really shouldn't attempt a budgeting process without knowing what their mission is. 
That's on the one side. On the other hand of that balancing is the economic resources that are available, which are finite. Right. And even if you think you can grow them, you have to be realistic in your budget process to say, not what do we hope we could have available, but what do we realistically believe we will have available? And sometimes then you can, if, if more does come in, you can say, well, let's expand the priorities that we can achieve in pursuit of, but even there, knowing the mission allows you to say, okay, what's the next thing? And what's the next thing? Because otherwise you're just looking at these options that are available to you and you don't know which to pick. You know, you can't pick all of them. You wish you could, but how do you decide which ones are most important and knowing what you exist to do is essential in that. The budgeting process so frequently turns into a long process of saying no to good ideas that we could do, but that aren't as squarely aligned to the mission as the other ideas that we will do. And that's not all bad. If you go through a budgeting process and don't have to say no to anything, it might be an indicator that it's time to go out and find some new ideas. Absolutely. To, to add to the list. Not that there's anything wrong with the things you said yes to, but it's not a bad indicator if you have to turn down some things because the resources aren't there yet because it means there are things you want to be doing that you can't currently do. Now, mm. you might not literally say no, but there's at least that I wish thought in your mind of what would I do if I had 20% more financial resources? Where would that go? You don't need to always have that written down, but it's good to have some sense in your mind of what direction would we go right. if we had more available? You've got to have a plan for God's abundance. You know, the Bible talks about in the stewardship arena, the Bible talks about living abundantly and that God wants to bless us abundantly. And most believers have no plan whatsoever for what to do with that when it comes. And here's the real problem. And I'm speaking more personally than institutionally, although I think we both have this problem at both levels, I should say. The, the problem for most Americans is that we just automatically adjust our cost of living, our standard of living, up to the new level of mm. abundance that God has given us, and we fail to recognize it as abundance. And perhaps God gave us that so that we could channel it and redirect it into some other area of ministry that he intended that to go, rather than just increasing the level of our own standard. Or to put it a different way, all of the discussion we just had about institutional budgets, yeah. we should take the exact same mindset into our personal budgets. What is my mission as an individual? What is my mission as a Christian? Hmm. And how do I use the financial resources that God's entrusted me with to accomplish that mission? Now, some of those, like with an organization, are going to be spent on things that don't feel like mission. Mm -hmm. yep. The grocery store. <laughs> gas in the car. The bank isn't going to, you know, take it or leave it on whether we make the mortgage payment, right? <laughs> but, my, but my mission, among other things, is to provide for my family. Yep. And to make sure that my children and my wife and I have food to eat and a place to live. Those don't feel like really eternal ways of spending money. But beyond those necessary things, what am I using my resources for? My financial resources, but something we very rarely sit down and budget 
my time resources. Mm -hmm. That's a thought provoking thing for all of us is how do we use our time? How do we use our skills? As we, and it's the idea of stewardship to say, I have resources. What am I doing with them? Well, for college students, that's got to be top of mind because they have a whole lot more time than they do money. That's exactly and it. And yet it doesn't feel like they have very much time. And there are so many competing things for their time. At Maranatha, it's, it's the standard that every student is involved in so many different things that they have the opportunity to do. Perhaps at a larger institution, you'd be doing one kind of focused thing, and that's your thing. But at Maranatha, it seems like there's just an unlimited host of opportunities. And part of it, again, going back to that word, no. Sometimes it's a process of saying no, because right now for where I'm at and what God wants me to do and excel at, I've got to turn something down that is good, that I'd like to do, but that isn't the priority right now. I had a colleague once who took a really innovative approach that I appreciated to his home repair list. He didn't have one list, as most of us do. He had two. Hmm. One of them was a list of things which required an investment of money but wouldn't take very much time, maybe because he'd hire someone else to do it. The other one was a list of things that wouldn't cost very much money but that he was going to have to spend <laughs> a good amount of time on. <laughs> and at any given point in time, which one did he have more of at the moment helped him determine which project he was going to tackle next. And it was a really interesting way of looking at it that I think is instructive for a lot of areas of life. I'm going to have to do that. Needs a third list, like things that I don't that have time both? for or money or for. Money. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what my list looks yeah, like. I, yes. I'm, I'm thinking the yes, same indeed. thing. All right. I want to ask you two questions about sure. value, okay? And you're a, a numbers guy, you said, a, a, a dollars and cents guy. So I'm going to ask you two value questions. And the first is, you you were in auditing for a long time. And even as uh, your firm now, that's something that you do is preparation for audits and mm -hmm. things like that. For people who maybe don't live in that world, audits, it sounds horrible. I mean, <laughs> just, I mean honestly, yeah. in the, a sense it most is. people think an audit, they think the IRS has audited me. And that's about the most chilling thing that could ever happen. And I have a feeling we're with all these tens of thousands of new agents supposedly coming in that a lot more people are going to have this experience. Going to get that letter at the mail. Yeah. But that's not what your auditing is all about. So can you explain to a layperson conceptually the value of an audit, kind of what it, what that is and why that's a valuable thing that, that they should care about too. Sure. And, and I'm going to start by answering the question, what an audit is not. An audit is not an anti-fraud tool. It's not a measure of the health of your organization. There's several other things that it's not. Now, an audit is supposed to consider the possibility of fraud and it will involve the financial health of your organization. But I had a, a guy come up to me one time. He was part of the management team at one of my clients, but he served on the board of another organization. And he raised the question with me, this other organization, they they struggled financially, but they got a clean audit report every year. Yep. And he asked me how that was possible. And the answer really lies in what an audit is. An audit is an independent certified public accountant coming in looking at your processes and then looking at your numbers. They're looking at the processes so that they can understand the numbers. They're looking at events that have happened in your organization during the past year. And they're making sure that the financial statements, including footnotes of your organization, accurately represent 
the finances, and the events of your organization. What that means is if you're in poor financial health and your financial statements reflect that, you can get a clean audit report because it's saying the financial statements are accurate. And then if you know how to use those financial statements, anyone looking at them is going to look at them and say, this organization is in trouble. It's an accurate representation representation that the financial health is poor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. But I would often have churches, and I actually had a conversation with a church just not too long ago about this, that would call me up and they would say, hey, help me out here. I think we need an audit. Now, keep in mind, many of these conversations were at a point in my life where I was an auditor. I was paid to do audits. Part of my responsibilities was to sell more audits and so it's in my best interest to sell audits, but I would ask them a few questions and I would quickly come to the conclusion that an audit wasn't what they needed if they were a small enough organization. Because a lot of times the reason that they were being asked was just because someone wanted to make sure nobody was stealing money from the church. Mm. Well, an audit is going to take that into consideration, but that's not what it's for. It's designed to give an opinion on the accuracy of the financial statements. There, there is an audit type that you can get if you feel that you may be embezzled or Correct. something like that. Correct, a forensic audit. You can audit. do a forensic audit. And that is a bad day. Yeah, that, well, and <laughs> it's a long day. It's a long day. <laughs> Maybe like a year's long day. But then, and audits are expensive because of the time involved. And even when it's not, say, an IRS audit and there's not that fear, even if it's a routine annual audit, it's a lot of work. My clients would put in a ton of work and you mentioned that my firm now does audit preparation services. That's one of the reasons why is because of all of the extensive and technical work that goes into being adequately prepared for an audit. It is not a fun experience. I had a client once who really was a big fan of our firm, our team, everything about what we did. And she told us, my favorite day of the year is the day you leave. <laughs> Nothing personal. Fair enough. Yeah. But our right. lives can go back to normal. And she liked us. You can imagine the people who didn't, mm. how they felt <laughs> the day we left. But where the value of an audit comes in is that knowledge, especially in a larger organization, that I'm receiving financial information that is accurate, that I can rely on for decision making. And especially if you find that that information is presented in a format that's similar to the format of the reports you're receiving during the year and that there aren't a lot of adjustments needed to get to that audit report, now you can say, in addition to that, the reports I'm getting during the year have a high degree of accuracy and a high degree of usability. But the other value that comes from an audit, there's sometimes this debate in the auditing world of whether or not an audit is a commodity, something where they're all the same. And the conclusion I've come to is that they often are, but they don't need to be and they shouldn't be. Because if you have the right auditor who really understands your organization, you can get a lot of value just from sitting down with them and saying, hey, we just had this come up. Help me think through it. We just had this come up. How should I account for it? We just had this come up. What should I be thinking of in response to this? What changes should I be making? If you're not getting that from your audit firm, then all you're getting is a very expensive piece of paper right. to go with your financial statements. But if you are, and I found a lot of times that value comes between audit cycles. 
Sure. When something happens during the year and you pick up the phone, which also makes the audit go smoother because now they're not finding out about things during the audit. That's where the value of an audit comes in because it can help help you make better decisions because you're making decisions based on more reliable information. Well, you can't help but gain that expertise as an auditor when you are reviewing so many other organizations and you're seeing how things can be done and you're sort of cultivating ideas that could help another client and say, well, I can't tell you where, but I saw this at another organization and maybe you guys should consider this same And I've had that technique. conversation more times than I can count because I was blessed to work at a firm that specialized in a particular type of organization, faith-based ministries. Now, there are several different subcategories of faith-based ministries, and I worked a lot with higher ed. I worked a lot with larger churches, with mission organizations. But what you find is that there are so many themes in common across all of those groups of organizations. Mm. In higher ed, you're going to face the same issues. Churches are going to face the same issues. The details are going to vary. But yes, exactly. You're coming in and you're saying, you know what? I had another client that ran into the same thing you're talking about. Or sometimes you can bring even more value by saying, I had a client that ran into something that I think you should be thinking of. It's not on your radar right now, but you need to be thinking about this because this happened yeah. at a client that I serve. And, and usually you're not able to say who that organization is. Mm -hmm. you, you often have to be pretty vague there, uh, especially if they know who some of your other clients are. But But you're you're getting that window into a number of different organizations. And the more similar your clients are, the more all of them get the value sure. out of you of the fact that you're getting that window into other organizations. So that does kind of bleed over into my other value question. And that is, you do a lot of consulting. Mm -hmm. uh, what What is the value of consultancy? I, I think the world has gone nuts for consultants, honestly. Um, organizations are spending millions of dollars on professional coaching, uh, counseling, consulting in all different fields. Why are they doing that? Uh, what, what is, are they just a bunch of snowflakes out there that, you know, need somebody to pat them on the head or, or uh, my sense is there's a real value here. What, what is the value of as an organization or especially as a ministry tapping into a resource like a professional consultant. Sure. And there is some aspect of the boom in consultancy that just comes from everybody's doing it, so we feel like we need to too. But so much of the value comes from the fact that none of us know everything. None of us, we talked earlier about, uh, before the podcast, about the idea that there are certain skills that are kind of opposites of each yeah. other. And often certain skill combinations don't reside in the same individual. And ultimately, even when someone has multiple skills, they usually only have a few things that they're really good at. And so you might have an organization and the people there are passionate about and skilled at what their organization does. I see this in the ministry space. I also see this in the small business space. I'm not exclusively working with ministries, but also with small businesses. And that's rewarding as well uh, in its own way because of the difference that they make in their communities, even if it is more temporal in nature. But they're good at what their organization does, and they just lack that comfort level with, in my case, finances. Mm. But in other people's cases, you might have an IT consultant or legal or 
human resources or any number of other things where they say, I don't need a full-time person for this. Or maybe I wish I could have a full-time person for this, but the resources don't allow. But I need someone who specializes in this thing that I either don't have the ability or I don't have the time to master and let them master it for me. Let them come in and say, hey, I'm going to be the guy who knows that for you and then helps you understand it up to the level you need to because they've spent all of that time becoming an expert in that field. Well, we all have blind spots that obviously we can't see, but I think beyond that, there's a, there's blind spots that you know you have, uh, areas of deficiencies, like people who might say, well, I'm just not good with the numbers. But we all have blind spots we're unaware of. And that's where a third-party perspective who has our best interests at heart and can privately and graciously come alongside and, and help us identify these areas of weakness and develop some solutions to try and bolster our, our abilities, our recognition of those weaknesses could be an extremely valuable tool in ministry. Uh, I think about the fact that how diverse the disciples were, that Jesus you know, picked a pretty ragtag group. A fisherman and a tax collector and everybody. Yeah, between. and they were, I mean, they were different geographically and professionally and personality-wise, and yet that was sort of modeling for us what we're going to see in a local church and what we're going to see in business and in the world and in families. And you have to be able to uh, relate to people that don't necessarily think and see the world the way that you do. And that that really can be a strength, right? I mean, isn't that what we what true diversity is really all about? It can. You know, diversity has come to mean so many different things yeah. in our culture, but the ability to see the same problem from different perspectives. Even you look at the different things in this room that we're sitting in here, we're seeing the same object, but we're seeing it from different perspectives. I have an iPad sitting in front of me. I can see the screen. Jonathan can see the fact that it has a gray case. Right. And that's a an insignificant example, but sometimes there's something about what you're looking at that is absolutely essential to know, but you can't see it from your perspective and someone else can. And by the way, when they come in, there's gonna be some things that you're seeing that they're not too. And they might even make a suggestion and you say, well, wait a minute, I need to push back on that suggestion because there's, a, there's something I forgot to tell you. And then you bring that into the equation, but you've got multiple people looking at the same problem from different perspectives and getting a more complete understanding of what you're dealing with. You said in your opening description of your mission statement that you had really three passages that you look at. And the, the third one is interesting to me because it's maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but you said that the verse in Philippians that talks about that I may know him. What, how does that play into all of this? Because that seems like just sort of a personal uh, theological knowledge of God. I, I think you must mean something more, more than that. Yeah, a lot of it comes back to the fact that I am one person. I'm not a different person in this context and in this context and in this context. And I cannot flourish in any context unless I'm the very best person and the very best Christian I can be. And that starts really with saying, God created me. And for anything, not just any person, but for anything to work properly, it needs to be used in the way that its designer intended. And so I will not function properly 
unless I am doing it in the way that God intended. And I understand that by getting to know him because he's the one that made me, he's the one that saved me, and I will be effective in all aspects of my life and in all aspects of my career when I'm really effective at following him and knowing him and understanding who he is and what he's like so that I can be like him, because that's the ultimate goal. We've been studying the Psalms in our chapel series this semester, and the pattern of the Psalms represents this a little bit, because no matter what the issue is, they almost always begin with a few verses of theology, of sort of the doctrine of who God is, and that's sort of front and center. And then my problems start to come into the poem. You know, the, the Psalms are poems, and they, they are reflecting a human experience, but they're, they're putting that in almost opposition to who God is, and that that's really what matters. Psalm 42 is a great example of that, where he starts by saying, God is our refuge and strength. And then in the next verse, it talks about, therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and the mountains be cast <laughs> into the sea. Things. <laughs> where that verse really became meaningful to me, I was on a client assignment in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, when we found out that Hurricane Sandy was forming in the Gulf oh, no. just beneath us. And this was, uh, I think at that point, two and a half years after the earthquake. I had first gone there for that client a year and a half after the earthquake that they had there. So I had seen what devastation a natural disaster could do in that city. And where it really gets interesting, if you've ever been to Port-au-Prince, it is on a bay, a very large bay, and then it is surrounded on every other side by mountains. Hmm. And I'm looking at that verse as I'm sitting there looking at projections that say this hurricane should go around us. And I'm questioning those projections because the thing hasn't started to move yet. Mm. Like, how do you have a trend line if this thing hasn't moved? But I'm also looking at the sea and the mountains and saying, God is our refuge, even if those mountains are thrown into that sea. Hmm. We can trust in him. And to your point, it starts with who is God? Right. And then it goes on to what our problem is. And oftentimes, if you don't know God before a trial, it's going to be infinitely harder trying to, to trust God in the trial. Trying to learn what he's like in the trial. Yeah. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Right. And it doesn't mean that in the trial, you shouldn't seek to get to know him better. Because that's one of the things God accomplishes with trials. But we have to settle these things ahead of time. Yeah. I already know that God is my refuge and strength. And so then when the storm comes, mm -hmm. I've already established that in my mind. I might have to remind myself. I might have to pick myself up off the floor and say, but this is what I know about God, but it's already there. Mm. And so we start by knowing God so that no matter what comes our way, we can do in that moment what he desires us to do because we already know him. You made the statement in the assembly to the students, God always has something that he desires you to do. You, you said that as if it was tr just true. You had just asserted it. Can you, can you back that up? Uh, is that true? God ha always has something that he desires for literally every one of his children to do. Is there really, because I think there are times in life when we maybe question that a little bit, and there may be people that sit there and listen and say, I don't, I hear that. I guess I mentally assent to that, but I don't feel like that's true for me, or I don't know what that is. If it is true, 
Can we be confident about that declaration? I, I think of really throughout the New Testament, you see it in the Old Testament as well, but throughout the New Testament, the book of Titus expands on this quite a bit. But I, for a concise explanation, I go to Ephesians 2, hmm. where Paul talks about good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. That's right after he talks about our salvation. In fact, he's, he's really saying you're saved and then this is why. The book of Titus makes the same case that we're not just saved, we're saved for the purpose of doing the things God wants us to do. And so we just always have to remember. Now, sometimes those things that he's given us to do may seem very mundane. Mm. They may seem very ordinary in nature. Sometimes literally it is just the basic things of life. That's what he wants us to do in that moment. When we're sleeping, it's because God's designed us to need sleep. When we're eating, God's designed us to need food. That's part of his design for us. But so much of the time we're doing other things that are part of God's plan for us if we're following him. And each day making sure that we're continuing to walk with him so that we're on the right path doing the good works that he's given us to do. And that's both a day-to-day little thing, kind of a will of God, but also sort of the larger answering of a calling. And you you spoke to that as well. You said how to answer God's call, present yourself. Here am I, Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what it is, God, but whatever it is, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 does that happen before or after you know what it is? It actually, I think, happens in both places. Yeah. Because we have to come to the point in our lives where we say, I will surrender to do whatever God calls me to do, whenever he calls me to do it, wherever he calls me to do it, however he calls me to do it. And yet, when the call comes, a lot of times we have to surrender over again Mm. to say, okay, because this is the thing he came up with, I'm going to recommit to that decision I've already (laughs) made because I didn't see this one coming. I didn't think this was what God had in mind when I said, yes, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But it's becoming clear to me now that it is. Hmm. And so it is something that happens at a point in time. There will be a first time for every believer that they make that commitment that it doesn't matter what it is. If God asks me, I'll do it. But then when those opportunities come along, we then have to agree with God that, yes, this is the next thing for me to do. This is the thing that I was surrendering to then, even though I didn't realize it at the time. Hmm. And yes, I'll do this because it's it's surrendering to the concept of fully following God. And then it's surrendering to the specific assignments along the way, some of which may be very easy to surrender to. And others of which, like Moses at the burning bush, Moses all but told God he was crazy for what God yeah. had called him to do. He didn't use that word, but that's what he was thinking. He was arguing. He was arguing. So we have to, in those moments, say, you know what? This is that next thing. This is what I surrendered to. I didn't, and that's that's one of the reasons that surrender is scary Well, of course. at times mm-hmm. because we're surrendering. Would you as an attorney advise a client to sign a document without having read the document first? Or just a blank piece of paper. I'll fill it in later. Don't exactly. worry. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and yet that, that's what God asks us to do. And that's okay because he's God, because he knows all things and because he's good. And so we know that whatever is there is good, even though we can't see it when we say yes. Well, yeah, I wanted to surrender to be an Instagram influencer. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's that sounds awesome. 
people pay you to like eat cookies and do interesting dancing things in your kitchen. And, and get watched on people's phones. Yeah. I mean, I'd be famous. Exactly. But somehow that isn't exactly what God had for me. Maybe for somebody, but not for me. But that's a one-time thing, right? I mean, I just uh, do it one time and then God gives me the direction for my life and that's it. That's my my path for this, like a straight arrow, always upward, rest of my life. Uh, no, no twists and turns, right? Or changes. I mean, God wouldn't. God would not change His mind, Ian. Right? I mean, what? I have grown to be fascinated throughout my adult <laughs> life and even before then. How many people do multiple things yeah. during their service for the Lord? Um, and a term that I've heard used to describe that is an assignment. God gives you an assignment, and then He can change that assignment, and often He does. Look at Moses. We've used that as look, the example. Look at sure. Moses. Yeah. Look at David, who actually mm. God made it very clear what he had called him to do and then made him wait a really long time to actually do it. Yeah. David knew he was going to be king. But I he think... had to have been wondering if he ever actually would be. And, pa- and it was same a way. huge detour. Yeah. Paul was the same way. God had told him, you're going to make it to Rome. But it was a long time. It was And indeed. a lot of detours in the way that he got there. It was indeed. So there, I, I think that's important to realize because so many times when you face that change of direction, it either is caused by, mm, let's say, a setback or it feels like failure. Because now I'm not on the path that I declared was my life path and I'm doing something new. I mean, you went from, I'm going to be part of this firm and I'm part of this established thing and we have a reputation and it's kind of prestigious to God telling you, uh, how about you go out on your own? It's just me. Yeah. We talked about the expertise earlier. I'm my own IT guy. I'm yep. my own uh, social media guy. But that, God did give you a consultant though. You have, you are married. I am. And she, <laughs> she does help me. She, she actually really came up with the name. Is that for right? The business. That's great. Yeah. Well, and tell has me. has helped me in numerous other it's, ways. It's called Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Why, why did you choose Lighthouse? I mean, I understand Lighthouse for like a church, but it's an unusual name for an accounting firm. So, it is. Or a consulting firm. What, what, why the, why the name? I, I've had the opportunity both as a child and as an adult to spend some time with Lighthouses on family vacations, and uh, even one of my son's most treasured memories, he and I have, a few of our kids and I have, and my wife have climbed to the top of some of our favorite lighthouses, and the view is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, doing it with small children is a little nerve-wracking. There's <laughs> always usually like a spiral staircase inside exactly, of there. Exactly. Uh, 200 steps up to the top and that sort of thing. But what I've come to recognize in lighthouses is that there are two kinds. They both work the same way, but they're serving two actually literally opposite purposes. One is the Harbor Lighthouse. Up here in the Great Lakes region, you're going to see more of those. It's telling you where to go. It's showing you the way. It's saying, this is what you're looking for, and I'm going to mark it for you, and I'm going to guide you in so that you reach your destination. That's one kind of lighthouse. The other kind is actually the one we find more on the Carolina coast not far from where I live. And it's the kind that says, don't go here. Stay away from shore. Ships are destroyed here. You need to know how far you are from shore so you don't get too close. This is the light that tells you steer clear. In both of those scenarios, I see a great illustration of what a good good consultant should do. Sometimes as a consultant, I'm sitting down and trying to help a person or an organization reach their destination. Let's help 
light the path to where they're going. Other times I'm saying, don't go there. That's going to destroy you. That's going to limit your ability or, or end your ability to achieve your destination. But in either case, uh, it's, it's something that you can bring value, going back to what we were talking about earlier, by showing people either where to go or where not to go so that they can achieve what their voyage is seeking to accomplish. Well, that's a great name. Your wife was mm-hmm. a genius. She was. She was. <laughs> I'm blessed in many ways. You concluded your remarks to the students, and I think it's a good place for us to kind of finalize and finish our conversation with the statement that you, you have to turn it from this list of things that you could do. And you gave them a, a very long list, a great list of opportunities to use whatever God gave you an interest in as ministry. But you've got to turn it from, I could, to, I will. What, what do you mean by that? Uh, thinking back to those college speech classes where they talk about the different types of speeches, and sometimes you're speaking just for information or just to entertain or, or something like that. But other times you're trying to persuade or inspire your audience to do something else. The conversation we had today in the General Assembly was not to inform, although that was a significant component of it. Uh, It was actually a huge component of it, but that wasn't the ultimate destination. There are certain times in communication where you're communicating something because you want people to act on it. And that was the point I was trying to convey to the students in the General Assembly was, if you walk out of here knowing that you could, that's okay. It's interesting. Might not even be a waste of time. But for this type of communication to really be effective, the effectiveness doesn't come from the speaker. The effectiveness comes from the listener. And I can provide the you could, but they can provide the I will. And then the other thing that I added in in mentioning that to them is if they do that consistently throughout their lives down the road, they'll be able to say, by the grace of God, I did. Mm. And that's really where they want to be because actually I will isn't even the destination. It's really the starting line. Mm. But getting to the point where we can say, by God's grace, I did. That's the goal. And I think that's a great summation of this podcast too. We are platforming people who have clearly said, I've got something to do with my life, but we want our listeners to turn that corner too and say, okay, so what's the purpose of my life? To what's say, the I purpose? will too. Exactly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with a mission with prayer and fasting and, and, and the research and whatever else needs to happen. But then to be able to think about what would happen at the end of my life if I was on that podcast? Could I say that I did something on purpose? Could I say, um, ultimately, when I get to heaven, oh, I, I actually served you, Lord, and to hear the well done, thou good and faithful servant. So thank you for your time this morning with the students. Thank you for your investment in time with the podcast. It's been a great time. Privilege to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. On Mission is a production of Maranatha Baptist University. Subscribe to On Mission on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review as this will help other growing leaders find these conversations. For information about our guests, previous episodes, and general information about On Mission or MBU, go to mbu.edu podcast. Join us again next week as we examine what keeps leaders on mission.